Let's get into it together here. Galatians chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Paul recognizes that there may be those among the Christians in the communities of Galatia who have been overtaken in a trespass. I think it's interesting how Paul includes these people among the brethren that he's writing to. In other words, they're still brothers. It's not as if being overtaken in a trespass means that they're excluded from the family of God. No, they're still part of the family of God, yet there's something not right. They're overtaken. They've been taken over by a a sin of some kind, and they're in that place of being overtaken, but they shouldn't stay there. No, instead, they should be restored. Now, when Paul uses this wording of overtaken, it speaks not of a determined, hardened sinner. Instead, the idea is of somebody who's fallen into sin. Before they know it almost, they find themselves trapped in a place that they never thought they would be. The Holy Spirit's been dealing with their heart. And now Paul says it's time to take those people and to restore them. They're overtaken in a trespass. Don't ignore it, but don't leave them there either. And what do you do with them? Notice, he says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. The overtaken ones need to be restored. Now, they're not to be ignored. There's something wrong when the church winks at sin in its midst. They're not to be excused. They're not to be destroyed. They're not to be gossiped about. The goal is always restoration. Interesting, the idea behind that word restore that Paul uses in the original language, the idea means to put something in order and to restore it to its former condition. It's really a medical term. It was used of mending a broken bone or putting a dislocated joint back in its place. And Paul says, when somebody's overtaken in a sin, there's something broken that needs to be restored. There's something dislocated that needs to be set right again. The issue is, is is, will it happen? Now, if it does happen, something glorious can take place. You know, sometimes a bone that's been broken, and when it's set in place the right way, and when it heals over, the joint is stronger than it was before. This can happen in somebody's spiritual life, too. The job of restoration, it has to be pursued. Sadly, it's often neglected in the church. We have a tendency to sometimes either pretend that the sin never happened, or we tend to react too harshly towards the one who sinned. And the balance between those two extremes can be found. But look at what he says here, verse 1. He says, you who are spiritual restore such one. It takes a spiritual person to be able to do that. Not to ignore the sin, but neither to be too harsh towards it. No, it needs to be in the middle. It should be normal to do what God says here, but it it is all too easy to respond to somebody else's sin by gossiping about it or to pronounce a harsh judgment or to have an undiscerning approval of them. No. No, instead, notice here, verse 1, what do you do? You restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Restoration must always be done in a spirit of gentleness. And how do you have that spirit? Look at it. He continues on, verse 1. 
considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. You know, if you're in touch with your own fallenness, if you understand the the ease in which you can be tempted and the ease in which you can stumble and fall, that's going to make you gentle in dealing with somebody else, isn't it? You're not going to be harsh and unloving towards them because you know that you could be in the same place that they are. And it's interesting that that those who do this restoration, they need to guard against that temptation of pride, of taking that sort of proud, superior attitude. I would never be in your place. I walk much too close to the Lord for that. So there's the, the person in the body of Christ that are overtaken in sin. Perhaps they're overtaken in the sin of of drunkenness or kind of some kind of substance abuse. Proud person, well. I'd never find myself in such a place as that. You need to get it right, brother. There's somebody else overtaken in the sin of sexual immorality. The proud person comes to them. Well, look at the terrible place you're in. It's disgusting. Get out of that, brother. You need to lift yourself higher than that. I'd never find myself in such a place. You're right, you wouldn't. You're in a much worse place. You're filled with pride. That's a worse sin than that person's drunkenness or the other person's sexual immorality. Your spiritual pride is a sin that you have straight on in common with Satan. That's his chief sin, his chief falling away. You need to consider yourself, lest you also would be tempted. No, you you restore a person, but you do it in full awareness of your own weakness, of your own failings, of your own susceptibility to temptation. You restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Now, there's a way that this continues on in the body of Christ. Look at it here, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. When Paul brought up the picture of someone overtaken in any trespass, we might almost picture it as a person sagging under a heavy load. Now Paul expands the idea to encourage every Christian to bear one another's burdens. I love the way God says things. He knows the fallenness of, of our hearts, and he knows how to phrase things the right way. I want you to notice what God did not say here. He did not say, look at verse 2, he did not say, expect others to bear your burdens. That's self-focused, isn't it? If it's the idea of, well, who's going to come and minister to me? No, self-focus is dangerous. It always leads to pride. It always leads to frustration, discouragement, and depression. No, that's self-focus. Instead, God directs us to be others-focused, and he says, bear one another's burdens. It's a simple command to obey. Find a brother or sister with a burden and help them carry it. It isn't complicated. You don't need to have a a huge program or a church infrastructure or something like that to do it. Just look for a burden to bear and bear it. But there's also something else implied in that, isn't there? There's something also implied that, that we have burdens that other people must help us with. Sometimes people get trapped in the, the just me and Jesus kind of trap. 
All I need is Jesus. I don't need you. I don't need anybody else. All I need is Jesus. Now, it's true that Jesus wants to meet every one of your needs. I don't doubt that for a moment. But, you know, sometimes he'll use someone else to do it. He'll use that word from someone else to do it. He'll use the hand of someone else. He'll use the assistance of someone else. And frankly speaking, if you're too proud to let somebody else bear your burden, then you're not going to receive something that Jesus wants to give you. Because you'll stand back with your arms folded and say, well, I'll just receive it from Jesus, but nobody else. And Jesus says, well, if you want to receive it from me, I'm going to do it through this person. Take it or leave it. No, we we need to be able to humble ourselves so that we can receive somebody else helping us with a burden. Now, notice what we do when we do this, when we bear one another's burdens. It says in verse 2, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, first of all, what law is he talking about? Well, he might be thinking of John chapter 13, beginning at verse 34, where Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this we'll all know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Well, that's the law of Christ, isn't it? Love one another. That means bearing one another's burdens. And Jesus tells us that that that's his law, that's his command. And Paul says, you want to fulfill that? Then bear one another's burdens. And you know what I love this? Again, it's one of these subtle things here in the book of Galatians, but it shows the brilliance of the Holy Spirit behind it. The the whole situation that Paul was writing to in the, the church at Galatia was the situation of legalism, right? And there were these voices shouting to the Christians in Galatia, come under the law, come under the law. You need to come under the Mosaic law. You need to prove yourself right. You need to fulfill the law. And Paul says, fine, you want to fulfill the law? Great, here's how you do it. Bear one another's burdens. They said, well, no, no, fulfill the law by uh, becoming circumcised, by eating kosher, by doing this, by doing... No, Paul says, no, you want to fulfill the law? Bear one another's burdens. That's the kind of legalist we can all handle, right? Fulfill the law of God. You want to be a legalist? You want to fulfill God's law? Yes, then go bear somebody else's burden. Love them. Now, what will keep us from doing that? Paul exposes this in verse 3. This proud attitude where he says, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. You see, this is what will keep us from bearing one another's burden and fulfilling the law of Christ. It's pride. Pride is when anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing. It's pride that keeps us from ministering to other people the way that we should. Maybe we look our nose down upon them, and that's why we won't humble ourselves to go in and and stoop down and minister to their needs. When we think we're something, when we're really nothing, then we're not going to fulfill this law of Christ. You know, pride is, in this sense, as much as anything, pride is self-focus. Understand this, pride does not necessarily say, I'm better than you are. No, that's not necessarily pride. Pride may very well say, you're better than I am, but pride will simply say, I'm more important than you are. So I deserve more of my own attention. I deserve more of my own love than you do. Oh, you're better than I am, sure, but I'm more important. I'll put all my love, all my attention on myself. No, biblical humility tells us, I'm nothing, but you're something. Let me care about your burdens. Let me care about your needs. 
But when someone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, it stifles burden-bearing. People out of pride refuse to give help, they refuse to receive help. I found it interesting when Paul says here in verse 3, if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. I almost thought that it'd be easy to understand this the wrong way. It'd be easy to think that what, what Paul's saying is that, well, you know, some Christians are something and other Christians are nothing. And the problem is, is that some of the nothings are thinking that they're the some things and they need to get that fixed in their head. No, that's not the idea at all. Instead, Paul is trying to communicate to us that in this sense, we're all nothings. Now how? Is it that we're all without worth before God? No, we're made in the image of God. If you're a believer, like one of the brethren that Paul's writing to here, you're a child of God. You're a member in his family. You're precious. You're valuable to God. No, that's not the sense in which we should consider ourselves nothing. We're just supposed to consider ourselves nothing in comparison to the needs and to the burdens of other people. It's just like Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 3. He said, In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's pretty much regarding myself as nothing and you as something. Your needs are important, not only mine. And when something like that happens, a beautiful, beautiful dynamic happens in the body of Christ. I mean, think about it. If everybody here esteemed everybody else as better than themselves, you know what it would be? We would have a community where, where I esteem you above me, you esteem me above you, and everybody is looked up to. Every single person in this congregation would be looked up to. And no one would be looked down upon. Isn't that great? Esteem others better than yourself. Now, what happens when you don't do that? Look at at the end of verse 3. He deceives himself. There are few things more self-deceptive than pride. To be proud is to be blind. You're blind to the freely given favor and gifts of God. You're blind to your sin and depravity. You're blind to the good in other people. And you're blind to the foolishness of your own self-centeredness. Pride blinds us. It makes us self-deceived. You know, we often get angry when somebody deceives us, don't we? You find out that that salesman has just been stringing you along and he's really deceiving you and you get angry. You find out that somebody you love and that you trust has been lying to you and you get angry because they deceived you. And I say that some of us need to get angry with ourselves because we've been deceiving ourselves. You need to go home, look at that person in the mirror and say, stop lying to me. You've been deceiving me. You've been telling me that I'm something when I should really regard myself as nothing. You've been telling me lies about who God is, about who I am, about all these things. I'm not going to take your lies anymore. I'm putting my foot down. You're not going to deceive me any longer. See, here's our problem. You know how our physical eyes work. They only look outward. They don't look inward. I mean, you can't turn your eye around and look at the inside of your brain. It's even freaky to think about, to be honest. (laughs) 
Our eyes only look outward, they don't look inward. Well, you know, some people's minds work like that. They can't look inward. They can't see where they're at. They can't see their true condition. And if you can't see your true condition, it's very easy for you to think that you are something when you should really regard yourself as nothing. And this power of self-deception, oh, it's so powerful. It's so strong. In my mind, this helps explain something and helps me understand a person that I think is the most self-deceived person who was ever created. I think that's Satan himself. I don't know of anybody who's a greater deceiver than Satan and who's more self-deceived than Satan. I mean, let me read this verse to you and tell me if you don't think this describes Satan himself. If anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Isn't that what was responsible for the fall of the devil to begin with? And even right now in his fallen state, he thinks himself to be something when he's really nothing. And so Satan is terribly, terribly self-deceived. I think this is why he keeps on going. Don't you wonder at that sometimes? You think, devil, give it up. I mean, can't you read the Bible? You lose. (laughs) Wake up! But yet he goes on with undiscouraged persistence. Working, working, working. If there's anything we can admire about the devil, it's his work ethic. And you wonder, why doesn't he just get discouraged and give up? Well, I believe it's because he's self-deceived. I believe that the devil is deceived enough to think that he might have a chance to pull it off. He's wrong, but he's self-deceived, and self-deception can be a very powerful, powerful dynamic. Instead, look at the attitude we're to have. Verse 4, but let each one examine his own work, and then he'll have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. Uh, Paul is drawing our minds to the place where we stand before God at a place called the judgment seat of Christ. The Bible says that when we pass from this life to the next, that not a single child of God is going to stand before the great white throne of judgment where eternal destiny is decided. No. No, our eternal destiny is already settled in Jesus Christ. Yet, every Christian is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ where we will be, well, if you want to say, assessed on our works and on our life and on our our service for the Lord. And when you stand on that day, you're not going to be responsible for for this person or that person or another person. No, you're going to be responsible for one person for yourself. You're going to have to bear your own load on that day. And you're going to have to examine your own work now because that's the work you're going to have to answer for. You won't have to answer for anybody else's work, but you will have to answer for your own. And shouldn't this make us serious about getting right and walking right with God? You're not going to be able to excuse anything you've done. Well, Lord, you know, the real reason I didn't serve you very diligently was because I, I, I had such a bad example in this other person. God says, well, what? Didn't you read my word? I gave you a lot of good examples in there. Uh, well, you know, the, the, the real reason why was this and this and this. And always try to slough it off on another person. God will say, no, nope. you're going to bear your own load on that day. So examine your work now. Isn't it great? God gives the opportunity to examine your work now. You can prepare for that judgment seat of Christ right now. 
Now, you shouldn't think that those who, who come up low at the judgment seat of Christ will somehow be punished or whipped or sent to some special you know, retaining room in heaven or something like that. No, not at all. It's just a matter of reward. But don't, we, don't we want to serve God diligently now and, and have our work approved before him right now? Well, he's going to tell us more how to do that. Look at here, beginning now at verse 6. He says, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Now, verse 6 is a very interesting passage here. Let's look at it carefully. Let him who is taught the word. Right? That refers to people who receive the teaching of the word. What should they do? They should share in all good things with him who teaches. The straightforward, basic meaning of what Paul's getting at here is that those who are taught in the body of Christ have a responsibility, have an obligation to financially support those who teach them. Now, this is one of those things that is oftentimes a difficult thing for a pastor to come and to, to teach on. You come to a verse like this and you feel a little bit awkward about it because, I mean, in the straightforward meaning of it is, is that those who are taught have an obligation to financially support the person who's teaching. And when you're the person who's teaching, it can seem awkward to talk about it. I mean, even a great man of God like Martin Luther, this man was fearless. This was a man who stared down the, the, the institution of a corrupt church and, and, and the Pope himself, and he didn't flinch at all. But when he came to a passage like this, this is what Martin Luther said about this passage. He says, I must say that I do not find much pleasure in explaining these verses. I'm made to appear as if I'm speaking for my own benefit. Yet at the same time, these passages are important. They teach us that well, the body of Christ has an obligation to support those who feed them spiritually. The idea is expressed in many different passages. Paul wrote this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He said, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14, he said, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and in doctrine. It's just a clear biblical principle that Paul repeats here, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Now, the, the sad part about this is that it makes it difficult because oftentimes people don't really want to surrender the financial area of their life to the Lord. But you know, it's just like any other area of life. God wants every area of your life and my life to be surrendered to Jesus Christ. And if we be honest about it too, the other thing that makes it very difficult is when you see this principle abused by people, by leaders in the church. When you see leaders in the church ripping people off or living extravagant lives, it discredits this true biblical principle. The word of God stands there. It just simply says, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Friends, it means that in whatever giving the Lord puts on your heart. And you should be a giver. You should be a giver because God's a giver. And God wants to make you a giver. But in whatever giving you do, as the Lord puts it on your heart, as the Lord directs you, at least part of that giving should be 
to the place where you get spiritually fed. It's wrong for you to not give to the place where you're spiritually fed. Based just on this principle in Galatians 6.6, 6, but also on many other passages. So if God puts it on your heart to give in all different places, and there's many different needs and many different solicitations for your giving, and, and you should just prayerfully consider them, but among them should certainly be the place where you get spiritually fed. Now, if you want to see how serious God is about this, look at verse 7. He continues right on. I'll begin at verse 6 so we get the context again. He says, Let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. I bet a lot of us didn't know that those two verses went together. The teaching's clear here. For those who are hesitant to share in all good things with those who teach them, Paul reminds them of God's principle of sowing and reaping. Their giving, that is, when they share in all good things with him who teaches, it isn't like throwing away money, it's like planting seeds. And whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. If you regard sharing in all good things with him who teaches as a waste, Paul says you're mocking God. It's selfishness that mocks God's generosity towards those who give to him. You know what Paul's saying here? He's saying that when you share in all good things with he who teaches, you, you don't do it so much for the teacher's benefit, you do it for your own benefit. I mean, why does the farmer plant the seeds? He does it for his own benefit. He does it because he wants to receive a crop back, and he knows that what he sows will come back in a wonderful harvest. And Paul continues on with this thought here, beginning at verse 8. He says, For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. You know, this principle of sowing and reaping has more to do than just with giving, although that's the primary application here. But it's also a general principle of the Christian life, isn't it? It's a general principle of life in general. You get out of things what you put into them. I mean, a farmer reaps the same as he's sown. If he plants wheat, wheat comes up. In the same way, you sow to the flesh, then the flesh is going to increase in size and strength. Somebody will come before me in counseling and they'll say, Pastor, I don't understand it. My mind is filled with all these lustful thoughts and desires and I just don't know what to do. And say, well, you know, what kind of movies do you watch? What kind of television shows do you What kind of things do you read? And you see that all through the week they're sowing to the flesh. They're sowing to the flesh. And then they, they scratch their head. I don't know why I'm reaping of the flesh. Computer programmers have a phrase for it, don't they? Garbage in. Garbage out. You'll reap what you sow in this. And as a general principle, we understand this. Now, let me add this, though. And I think this is a very important point for us to understand. That this principle of reaping and sowing, it's valid as it applies to giving. I mean, Paul uses this illustration not just here, but also in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. The, the picture of sowing and reaping as it relates to giving, it's valid for that. And it's also valid as a general principle. But friends, please don't regard this as an absolute spiritual law. That whatever you sow, you reap. That you're going to get whatever you deserve. 
When you do good, you're going to get good. When you do bad, you're going to get bad. My friends, if that is an absolute spiritual law, then we're all going to hell. I mean, let's praise God that his mercy endures forever. And that he loves and forgives and restores. So it's true in regard to giving. It's true as a generalized principle. But we praise God that that there's not some kind of spiritual law of karma that ensures that when we we do good, we're always going to get good. Or when we do bad, we're always going to get bad. No, the mercy of the Lord endures forever. But if you want to see that harvest of good, look at it here in verse 9. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Well, isn't that the place a lot of people find themselves in when they're starting to reap to the Spirit and reap to the good things of God? That they expect to see a harvest right away. And when the harvest doesn't come right away, they get discouraged. Oh, here's a person, they've been backslidden, they've been in a bad place before the Lord, and God convicts them, and they turn their life around, they repent, they say, oh God, I want to get things right with you. And they set themselves on a different track altogether. And then the next day, they wonder why everything isn't different in their life. Well, I'll tell you why. It's because you've just started sowing the seeds to the Spirit. You have to give a while for that crop to come up. It doesn't change overnight. God doesn't wave a magic wand over your life. You've planted the seeds to the Spirit. You keep planting them, and you're going to see a glorious harvest come up before long. But you have to wait. Look at it. It says there in verse 9, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Don't lose heart in what you're doing. If you don't see the immediate results, if you don't see the quick payoff, don't lose heart. Keep going. You know, in the ancient world, this phrase translated lose heart was used for the kind of fear and weariness that a woman experiences during labor, but before delivery. That's a time when the, when the work is hard and painful, but it's also unfinished. It's unrewarded. But keep going. that The baby will come. Keep going. The pain will stop. Keep going. The harvest will come. And he concludes here with the verse we're going to conclude in verse 10. Is therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Friends, not losing heart, we seek to do good with our resources. And who do we do good to? We do good to everybody, but especially to those people who are of God's family. In other words, when it comes time for doing good, first look to who you can help in God's family. It's not that we neglect, it's not that we ignore the needs outside of God's family, those those who are not Christians. No, no, we should help them as well. But friends, especially to those who are of God's family. And I love how he puts it. Do you see that concluding line there in verse 10? Especially to those who are of the household of faith. I love that phrase, household of faith. It reminds us of two things. First of all, it reminds us that the family of God is a household, right? I mean, we're a family. We've got the same father, we've got the same older brother, Jesus Christ, and we're all siblings, aren't we? We're a family. You belong to God's family. You've got a place in God's family. Here we are, we're God's household together. But he also says it's a household of faith. Now, he could have used a lot of different terms there, right? He could have said it's the household of love. It's it's the household of uh, worship. It's the household of prayer. 
But he wanted to emphasize that as much as anything, what ties together as Christians is that we're tied together by the fact that we have a common faith in Jesus Christ. Not just an intellectual belief, but we trust in him. We rely on him for our salvation. You can be a part of that household of faith. You can put your trust in Jesus Christ to, to save you, both for now and eternity, and be a part of that household of faith. You can join in. The, the doors are open. It's an easy adoption into this family. But it's like becoming part of a family. It takes up everything that you are, everything. That's your new identity. You're a part of the household of faith. Through these 10 verses that we've looked at together, the the theme has been doing good. So many opportunities for us to do good. I mean, you can do good by by, um, restoring someone who's overtaken in sin. You can do good by bearing someone else's burden. You you can do good by uh, sharing with those who teach you. You can do good by sowing to the Spirit instead of the flesh. So many ways to do good. I guess we need to say that in the household of faith, there's... Well, there's chores for us to do, right? I mean, we're all kids in the household, and here's the chore list. Go out and do good for other people. Now, I don't know how it is in your family, but my children don't always respond with enthusiasm to the chores. Shouldn't we set a better example in the household of God? Shouldn't we set a great example for our own children, for ourselves? Here we are, we got the chore list in the household of God. We'll do it, Lord. We'll do it with gladness. We'll do it with enthusiasm. Here we are. We're of your household, God. We'll do good one to another. We're all of the same household, the household of faith. So God, give us this heart. We'll do the chores that you've assigned us. Now, chores don't make you a part of the family, right? No, you're part of the family by birth. It's just appropriate for you to do the chores because you're in the family. No, you're part of the family because of the new birth you've received in Jesus Christ, now God says, got some chores for you to do. Let's do them together. Do good for others as much as you have the opportunity. That's a big call for us to do. Let's, let's ask God to work that in our hearts, that we're willing to do this together.